0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. Two days ago, the Supreme Court of our country ruled decision that same-sex marriage is a constitutional right on the basis of the majority of that court. All 50 states must now grant marriage license and recognize same-sex marriages. The Supreme Court has the constitutional power to dictate to individual states what they Define as marriage. And they exercised that right on Friday as they handed down their decision. My intention today is to give you what I believe is a biblical response to that situation. And I want to begin by saying this that although the Supreme Court of our country has handed down this ruling, there is a Supreme King that serves over another court that's higher than our court. And that's the High Court of Heaven. And the judge that sits and presides over the High Court of Heaven has already defined marriage. He's already clearly made a statement about what marriage is. It was designed by him, created by him according to his divine plan for his good pleasure. His authority is ultimate. His decrees are eternal. His power is uncontested. And his decisions are final. The judge who presides over heaven's high court has already spoken about marriage. And so, what I want to do this morning. is to encourage you that God is not intimidated that God is unchanged that his design and definition for marriage remains what it has always been He didn't get up Saturday morning and say oh I have to rewrite the book As followers of Jesus Christ, what we need is a response. And so it's my intention this morning to give you, certainly I I can't do that exhaustively in a message, but it's my intention in the time that I have this morning is to give you what I believe is a proper biblical response to the decision on Friday. What is it? Let me begin by asking this question. What is it that must inform our opinions? We know what it is that informs the opinions of the majority of our country. It's the cultural media. What is it that is to inform the opinion of followers of Jesus Christ? And what that is, is the... Bible, the Word of God. So let me begin by just making a statement here. A statement that I hold the deep conviction over, and that the elders of this church hold deep conviction over. And that is that in the Bible we have the very Word of God. We have the Word of God in errant, in written form. In its original manuscripts, we have this Word of God that is the authority for matters of faith and practice in life. And being the Word of God, it is beyond contestation. It is something that must form our convictions and shape our worldview. We don't get to redecide and redefine, d- define what issues like marriage are if God has already spoken about what they are. His voice is eternal and sovereign and unchanging and unmovable. So let me just begin with answering this question, what does the bible say about marriage what does the bible say about marriage we're going to see in this what both the design of god and the definition of god is for marriage genesis chapter 1 27 and 28 we must start at the very beginning because here is where we are going to see an informed biblical picture of what God's design and definition of marriage is. Genesis 1 27 and 28. So God created man in his image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds. Of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created mankind in His image, but notice this. He created them both male and female in His image. That is highly significant for the discussion that we are having this morning. Keep that in mind. And after creating mankind in His image, male in His image, female in His image, He joined them into the union of marriage. God the Creator gave the first woman to the first man. And here is what Adam said in Genesis two twenty-three and 24. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The relationship of marriage was the design of God and the gift of God and the work of God in which He united both aspects of His creation that were created in His image. Let me say that again. In marriage, God took The man created in his image uniquely distinct from the woman who was also created in his image. And he joined in marriage the two of them into a one flesh covenant union called marriage. That was the creation and the design of God in marriage. Secondly, that's what the written Word of God says. I'm going to ask you another question. What does the living Word of God say? Who is the living Word of God? Who is the living Word of God? Jesus Christ. This is the written Word of God, written form. Jesus Christ came as the living Word of God God in the flesh, the living truth embodied in a personality perfectly. And what did the living word of God say about marriage? Matthew chapter 19, four through six. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. What Jesus did was he perfectly endorsed God's word originally and stated that the design and the definition of marriage is exactly what it was at the beginning. It was a relationship between one man and one woman. And that relationship is a relationship where God takes and he makes them into one flesh and he does that through his work, God's work, taking the two in one, making them one. Therefore, do not put asunder what God has joined together. I just think about one of the implications of that. What happened on Friday? What a relevant word to Friday, where the Supreme Court put asunder, they said it's not a man and a woman, it's genderless. You see, the Supreme Court's decision attempts to wipe out gender roles and uniqueness and distinction. That's the Genesis account in the written Word of God and what the living Word of God, Jesus Christ, said going back to the very beginning. And then, secondly, I want to show you what Paul does in Ephesians chapter 5 because Paul brought a new truth into realization, a mystery that had not yet been understood. Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verses 22 to 32. Paul wrote, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, what mystery? The two becoming one flesh. This mystery is profound and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. You see what Paul does here is he reveals a mystery. A mystery is something in the past that had been un yet undeclared, as yet undeclared, unknown, and now he has revealed it. He is, through the wisdom that the Spirit of God gave him, he looked at marriage and the Spirit showed him that marriage is a picture designed by God to point to the covenant relationship between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. The greatest visible picture of that on planet earth. That's what marriage is intended to be. It's about two people Becoming one. And that mystery is a picture of what happens in salvation when a person comes to faith in Christ. They are united to Christ. The very death of Christ becomes their death, death to sin. Freedom from condemnation and the life of Christ becomes their life. Resurrected with Jesus to no condemnation, never again, always united to Jesus Christ. You see, the marriage relationship is designed by God to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and His bride, the church, God had that in mind in Genesis when He created them, male and female, each in His image, and took the two and made them one. So it really has this incredible dual picture. It is an aspect marriage and its design is an aspect of the image of God that takes a man created in his image and a woman created in his image and making them into a one relationship. You can't have that if you have two men or two women. You lose something about the truth of the image of God because they were unique in their creation, male and female, both in the image of God. And it's the bringing together of their uniqueness into oneness that the image of God is beautifully seen. So this redefinition, the attempt to redefine marriage, is actually an attack at the very fundamental level of the chief human institution and building block for our culture, for our society. And then secondly, it's an attack against the very picture of the work of Jesus Christ and his relationship to his bride, the church. It takes a male gender, and a female gender to accomplish They see. What do you mean with Ephesians? Let me explain it. What Paul does in Ephesians 5 is that he begins to talk about the distinctives of a man and a woman and the roles of a man and a woman in marriage. And he says that the woman is to submit to and respect her husband and that the man is to do this. He's to sacrificially love his bride as Christ loved the church. And what is the purpose of that sacrificial love? It is to assist her in becoming holy, in becoming all God wants her to be, number two. Number three, how does he get that done? By spiritual leadership, by taking the Word of God and using it in the home to shape and mold himself and his bride and his children. Now let me ask you a question. And apply that to the ruling handed down if gender is a distinction is absolved and marriage becomes a genderless commitment. Can we switch up the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church? Can the church be the leader of Jesus and Jesus submit to the church? I mean, that's a ludicrous, even ludicrous for me to say that, almost as a bad taste in my mouth, even to say that, that the church would lead Jesus and that Jesus would submit to the church. But the man is to be a reflection of the love of Jesus and the leadership of Jesus in the home. And the woman is to be a reflection of the bride of Christ, the church, in submission and respect to her husband. There is a design in the genders and their specificity in the design and definition of marriage that is meant to point to a greater truth and a greater reality about the relationship of the covenant between Christ and His church, and if we get rid of that, what damage is done to the greatest of relationships, our relationship to our God? So the point that I am really wanting to stress here, it is the maleness of man and the femaleness of women that were intentionally designed by God to go into marriage. It is in their uniqueness becoming oneness that the image of God finds its great expression and the covenant relationship of Christ and His church finds the greatest expression so that if that is removed, such as the decision that was made on Friday, it strikes at the very core, fundamental aspect of our human society, our human relationships. What damage will be done, that is really hard to predict. You know why? Because never in the history of the world Never in the known history of the world has a country ever, a people group ever made the decision that was made on Friday. We are the first to our shame. So it's, we have no precedent to try to predict what the fallout of that will be. Secondly, that was what the, we just talked about what the Bible says about marriage and why it is so critical to the subject that we're considering. Secondly, I want to say, talk about what the Bible says about homosexuality. What does the Bible say about homosexuality? I'm just going to read you a few verses. Leviticus 18.22. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serves as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Just a brief comment about those two verses. In light of them, God sees homosexuality as sin, and secondly, historically, he's judged it severely. Can't get around that in the Word of God. Those are both true. He sees it as sin, and in the past he's judged it severely. And he's a God that changes not. He's immutable. Passage I want to spend a little time on, though, is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Paul writes Or Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Two things I want to point out here. And I like to speak about homosexuality from this passage. Here's why. Number one, because homosexuality is not the only sin listed here. It has a list of them. You see that? has several things that are mentioned right along with it. You see, I think what we tend to do if we're not careful, is that we as followers of Jesus upgrade certain sins to a more grievous level or the most grievous level in the mind of God and homosexuality is one of those that many put right up there on the top of the list. And yet right here in this passage, right here in this passage, along with homosexuality are things like theft and greed and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. They're referred to in the same breath and they receive the same condemnation from God. That's significant. All sin is an affront to the holiness of God. Let's upgrade sin, not downgrade some. Second reason I like this passage to speak about homosexuality because the phrase is very specific in the Greek. It refers to those who practice, quote, practice homosexuality. I want to make a distinction here. Have you consider this? To practice something is to engage in the act of something. It's participation in it, physical engagement in it. There's the, a difference, listen, there's a difference between the practice of something and the temptation to practice something. Everybody listen really closely to what I just said. There is a difference between the practice of something and the desire to practice something. We need to be careful with that distinction. Temptation in itself is not sin. What we do with the temptation determines whether or not we are stepping out in rebellion against God. Now, I do not believe that people are born homosexual. That's A. But here's B. I do believe that there are people who have the desire to act out homosexually. Even Christians who have the desire, the temptation to act out homosexually because here's what I know. There is an inherent orientation in all of us. The Bible speaks about one orientation over all humanity. And here's what it is. S-I-N. That's the orientation. It's sin. And there are some of us that have an orientation or a bent or a greater temptation to certain sins than others. I have an orientation, a bent toward certain sins that tempt me where other sins I don't struggle with at all. That's true of every one of you in here. It's true of every believer in here. And there are Christians that have a strong desire or temptation toward sexual homosexual activity. That desire does not make it sin. It's what they do with that desire that determines whether it is sin, whether it is rebellion against God. And what 1 Corinthians 6, 9 does is that it identifies those who practice sins of homosexuality. That means those who continually or consistently engage in the act practice it, those who do so without remorse, without repentance, those who know what God's Word has said but refuse to abide by the Word of God, that's the people that 1 Corinthians condemns. It doesn't condemn people who have engaged in an act of homosexual activity. It doesn't condemn those who have had a past of homosexual activity. It condemns those who say, God, I am living by my own rules and homosexuality is the lifestyle I am going to continually, consistently practice without remorse. That's who's condemned by 1st Corinthians chapter 6. It's those that will not enter the kingdom of heaven, just like those who continue in all other forms of sexual immorality, which is in the verse as well. And those who are greedy and thieves and drunkards and revilers and swindlers. It's an unrepentant heart set on its own sinful pursuit that refuses to submit and be broken over the sin of their life that's the people that first corinthians 6 9 and 10 are speaking about let me just make it as explicit as i can it is not those who struggle with the desire that are excluded from heaven It is not those who have at some point engaged in homosexual intercourse that are excluded from heaven. It is those who practice the act consistently, who are not repentant, who pursue the lifestyle, regardless of what God has said. One final passage from Romans chapter 1. You probably knew I was going to get to Romans at some point, didn't you? But here's why, folks. The greatest passage in Scripture that speaks to this is Romans chapter 1, without question. Let me set it up for you. I'm just going to read one verse, but let me set up the unfolding narrative of Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Beginning at verse 18, the wrath of God is identified as coming against the human race and what happens in the verses that follow down to the end of the chapter is this incredible demise of humanity that is pictured in this downwarding spiral into greater and greater depths of sin and depravity. It begins because people, all people, have a knowledge of God that is all around them and that leaves them without excuse. That's creation, where the glory and the power of God are clearly visible. But what Paul wrote was that mankind decides not to keep that knowledge of God. And so what they do is they exchange the glory of God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. They fall into idolatrous practices. They don't retain the knowledge of God, but they begin to practice forms of idolatry. And Paul said, here's what God does. God gives them over to passions, to degrading passions, and he begins to talk about homosexuality. Women inflamed with lust for women, men inflamed with lust for men. And that leads to this final section of a list of some 17 plus things that Are greater and greater levels of depravity in the human heart. But then comes the concluding verse of the downward spiral in Romans 1.32. And I want you to consider what this says as a relevant. It's like it was written Friday night. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. You know what the Supreme Court did on Friday? They gave approval to those who practice The sin of homosexuality, they institutionalized it and made it normative in our culture. They said, it's right, it's good, it's normal, it's accepted, it's law. What an indictment to our culture and to that decision how incredibly timely and relevant the Word of God is. Finally, number three, how should the follower of Christ respond? I'm just going to give you several things and then we're going to pray. And I'm going to open up uh, the altars, come down, kneel at the stage. We just need to pray. We... (laughs) Well, I'm getting ahead of my application here, but we need to pray. So what must we do? Number one, I'm talking to the church here. We need to repent. We need to repent. The church in America, we as the church, we need to repent. We need to repent of how we've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We need to Repent of the ways that we have been conditioned by and influenced by the cultural media and the popular message of the day instead of getting our worldview exclusively from the truth of the Word of God. Any movement away from that in the direction of cultural popularity, we need to repent of that, be it a mile or an inch. We need to repent that we've been more concerned about being accepted and liked than being faithful to the truth. Number two, we need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray. We need to pray pray for revival. We need to pray for a revival in our churches. We need to pray that the church would form its opinions of events like this based upon what the Word of God says. Third, oh, this is so critical. This is so critical. We need to live biblically. If the ch- church, if followers of Jesus Christ in marriage would live out the ideal of marriage before the world's eyes, it would be such a powerful influence in our culture if the world looked at a Christian marriage and they saw an incredible Accurate picture of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church, what a powerful impact that would make on our culture. But instead, our divorce rate almost runs parallel with the world's. We need to live biblically. Number four, we need to be lovingly engaged. There's a lot of ways that we can do that. You can fill that in. We, We need to vote. We need to speak to other people about God's definition and His design for marriage. And we need to do that lovingly. We need to be lovingly engaged. Not hatefully engaged. Not antagonistically engaged. Not abrasively engaged. We need to be lovingly engaged. Number 5 we need to share the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the victor. Jesus can break the power and stronghold of sin. Amen. He has offers forgiveness for sins condemnation, freedom from sins bondage, power over sins control. That's the message of the gospel. We need to communicate that. There are people in bondage to homosexuality that need to know they can be forgiven and those chains unleashed and power given to live in a different way. And finally, those of you with children... Be they 2 or 12 or 22, teach the truth of God's Word and the authority of God's Word to your children. They are inundated, they are inundated with the cultural media perspective in all facets of life. And what they need to know is that their dad and their mom are absolutely convinced that right here is the authority and no other. That when this says something, it is final, it is timeless, it is authoritative cannot, it will not ever change. They need to know that though the Supreme Court made the decision to redefine marriage, there was no effect of that marriage is still what it has always been because God defines marriage and only God. And they need to see that conviction in their mother and their father and they need to also see your love for people regardless of the acts that they participate in. They need to see your commitment to sharing the gospel of Jesus with people and offering the grace of God through Jesus Christ in love. Don't ever let them see you be antagonistic or hateful or rude to those who participate in things that they don't participate in or you don't participate in. Those things need to be taking place in the home. Listen, just hit me this morning. Who knows? Listen, who knows? One of your kids might change the nation. As you pour into them a biblical worldview, who knows what one of them may be? They may usher in the next great revival. And the place where those opinions are gonna be formed and the worldview is gonna be formed that'll set that up is in the home. Where dad and mom Not only speak about, but live out their convictions about the truth of the Word of God and the worldview that this informs. And If you didn't hear last week's message, Pastor Dale preaching about investing into our children and season of life in which we have them, you need to listen to that message. I was so convicted by that. But we need to do that. What I want to do as we close I'm just going to have a I just want us to have a time of prayer. Worship team would you come? I want us to just have both a time of silent prayer and a time of corporate prayer. So I'm just going to invite you would you please stand? I'm going to invite you that I mean, you can certainly pray where you want, but I'm going to invite many of you to come. Come and kneel at the stage. Come to the altars. And we need to pray for our country. We need to pray and repent of our own issues. And we need to pray for our country. Do you remember Do you remember what Abraham did as he pled with God over Sodom and Gomorrah? People of God need to do that. We are at a critical juncture. We need to pray and plead that the wrath of God would be stayed, that the Spirit of God would move and turn the tide. Would you please come and pray? And after a period of a few minutes and us praying, I'll lead us in a corporate prayer. You, you come as we, as we pray. You're welcome to come.